welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Well, it feels uh, to me, I feel feel a wee bit reassured. You join us in, if you're new to us this week, um, in the book of Revelation and I feel happy to be in the book of Revelation, strangely, at a time whenever um, so much is going on in our world that is right before our eyes, and the book of Revelation um, deals with big themes, deals with meta-themes, and introduces us to the, the rawness of life, and already, I think, when you stand in the sort of moment we're in and think of people standing in different parts of the world and how they might be reacting or would read a book like the book of Revelation, um, I, f- I feel like it, it's, it's a helpful place um, to be. And, you know, we, we are in a, in a strange uh, moment of time. You know, for me, it's a strange moment. And do we just carry on as normal, even though we know there's a, a war across Europe? And, of course, the answer is no, but it's also a yes. There's a, a no, and, of course, we can't just carry on as normal. We, we bring our prayers. We are mindful of the, the atrocities that are going on right now. We see the call to give and the slides to give to organizations like the DEC or, or BMS. We, we know we're called to pray. We know we're called to, to not just stand by. But there's also a, a yes, we do have to carry on because... We cannot let the very thing that the war is trying to threaten, our freedom and our peace and the things that we love, we cannot let them be pushed aside until, and just let war have its way even whenever it's not on our doorsteps. And so there, there's a real challenge how to, to, to live in this moment. And we, we can't push away questions that are big, questions of death or questions that we, we tend to, in normal times, be able to push aside. So... There's a whole rawness that I, I just feel at this moment that I, I wonder if it's palpable as you feel it as we come, as we meet. Um, but there is a, a, a carrying on as normal, yes, and there's also a no to that as we come and as we gather around the scriptures, particularly around such um, challenging themes that have just been read from um, Revelation 4 and 5. So just a heads up um, on where we're going for the next couple of weeks. This week, we're in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. You will hopefully have gathered that. Next week, we are going to be thinking of from chapters 6 through to 8 uh, about a theme of judgment and thinking about that theme of judgment and how it runs through uh, the book of Revelation. So come prepared uh, for that one. And um, then the week after that, we are thinking about the theme of the gathering of the nations um, and particularly the Spirit's role who goes, leads us out into the world and then the gathering of nations. So that's where we're going. If you want a bit of a, right, where have we come from? Where are we going to over the next few weeks? Um, but for this week, we are in chapters uh, four and five. I think it's helpful then to know when we're reading the book of Revelation as we're becoming, of course, we're becoming experts in right now. When we get to the moment of chapters four and five, we come 
to a key moment. In fact, we come to the central vision of the whole book of Revelation. This is a central vision and also a, a centering vision. Everything before this point that we have read about flows up to, and everything that happens after flows out of this vision that we have just heard read from chapters four and five. And they are like, they're, they're to be read together. So if you're reading the book of Revelation, when you read chapters four and five, read them together. They're like two panels of a masterpiece that you're meant to, to look at both sides and see something together that tells us um, the story of the book of Revelation. Chapter four is a theophany, a manifestation, appearance of God. And chapter five is a Christophany, a manifestation or appearance of Jesus. And it's in their parallelism or their, their symmetry when we see the two together that something powerful becomes apparent. First of all, though, in the scriptures, in chapter four, begins with an invitation that is heard. An open door to heaven and a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here, come up here and I will show you what must take place. Now, awaking is one of the themes that we're trying to hold on to as we read the book of Revelation. And the type of book it is, is there's more going on than what we can see with our eyes. The book of Revelation is constantly trying to awaken us to, to see what we cannot see with our own physical eyes. It's a come up here to the apocalypse, an unveiling, a revelation of what is really happening, what is really going on. Sometimes we need to, to come up to take a perspective in order to be able to, to look forward and to move forward. And just to repeat a little side note that I think I've mentioned before on this theme, many would say that there's a bit of a, a maybe a secular come up here moment going on at the minute in the West. Um, the Western hope of a secular hope of a, a sort of a, a liberal utopia where we put behind those old things like religion, tribalism, and all that old way of thinking, and we replace it with the new or sort of relativistic position where the individual is king. We thought that was going to take us in a really good place if we could just pack all that uh, religion stuff to the side. And I think many are saying we're waking up to this secular dream that is actually turning into a bit of a nightmare of its own, because we are, here we are, we find ourselves in this particular moment with, with war on, on, the, on the continent. And we're like, gee whiz, what is going on? We had a collective moment through the pandemic, which was good, the pandemic's been horrendous for many, but there was a collective moment where we, were, we sensed we were in something together, but now, gee whiz, that is in the rear view mirror, and we are left back to our secular dream, which for many is just in, in disarray. And so perhaps there is a moment of time to, going on at the minute where there are people going like, hey, what's going on? What, what is going on in this world? And perhaps there, there's a moment to reflect and join in with that question and go like, well, actually, let, let's, let's examine some of the assumptions of our society that we thought were good. We thought were good foundations and maybe ask some questions. But for now, we concentrate on what St. John, um, the writer of Revelation, hears and sees. To state the obvious, it was, of course, a, a dramatic vision that he, we have um, now, that John received in Patmos, but we have now in its written form. 
And of course, in some sense, that can be a bit of a, a disappointment as we move through the book of Revelation because actually he got the really exciting vision and, and we have it in its written form. But it's interesting, it says this vision was, he was in the spirit. And which is, which gives us actually a lot of glimmers of hope because as we read the scriptures, that we have been promised that the same spirit who, who formed and, and, and informed John's vision is the one who loves to illumine and light up our hearts and our minds as we open the words of scripture. The spirit loves to, to do that. And it was in the spirit that this vision was seen and it's in the spirit that the vision can come alive. And, and, and boy, do we need it as we go off, as I warned you, we're through the easy bits of Revelation into the deep end and it just gets deeper and deeper as we unpack the seals and, and move through the different themes. So may God's spirit move among us and, and illumine what he wants to illumine in our lives and our hearts and our minds. So chapter four, first of all, it's like a window where we're peeking into heaven to see what is really going on. And the first thing St. John sees is a throne with someone on it. Now a throne today, well, we generally, we understand the concept and you know, we live in a, in a monarchy but I think many of us would probably agree that the, the, the sense of power or when it comes to the symbol of the monarchy or a throne is, is maybe not what, what it once was. It doesn't typically, maybe at an emotive level, symbolize authority and power. You might disagree with me if you're a royalist. I forgive me for that if, if, you, if I offended you. But I, I think certainly not in the sense of when at the time of AD 70 to sorry, AD 95, the throne would have symbolized something really quite um, grand. So conceptually, maybe more emotively, symbols like, I don't know, the, the speakers or the leader's lectern or the houses of parliament or the, the Oval Office, it, some of these things might actually symbolize a, a sense of, of power more immediately to us. Or as I was also uh, double checking with um, one of my boys this morning, um, it might be uh, the symbol of you know, Mr. Beast in YouTube, 91 million followers, or Charlie D'Amelio, I generally don't know who that is, but 107 million TikTok followers. For some, you're like, leave the throne, the lecture, like that is par. You like to have 107 million people follow you, my goodness. Uh, so whatever theme really does it for you, maybe there's more powerful symbols you can think of because the throne depicts dominion, glory, power, and all authority. And it's the first thing John sees. New Testament scholar Michael Gorman, he, he notes that chapter, in chapters four and five, there's a, a real symphony of Old Testament appearances. Remember in the book of Revelation, we said, it's not like other parts of the Bible where you'll see references and quotes of the Old Testament. What we have is images and allusions to a whole symphony of images from the rest of the scriptures. And so we find echoes of Moses and the burning bush of the appearance of, of Yahweh then in Exodus 3. In Exodus 19, we have the, the giving of the law in Exodus 19, and there's fire, there's smoke, and there's lightning, and again, we, we pick up these themes in the book of Revelation of thunder. 
And we have God depicted on a throne in 1 Kings. We have the appearance of someone mighty in Daniel with a, a white appearance of a holiness, a son of man. And also, particularly in, in this section that we're in, we have Ezekiel's vision in chapters one to three in particular, where there's a sense of the glory and the beauty of God that Ezekiel is being, have his eyes opened up to. Ezekiel saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. The word for glory in the Hebrew is havod. It means like a, a heaviness, a real weight to the glory of God. And, and John, the writer, was particularly cognizant of the Ezekiel vision as he was um, writing and uh, in, interpreting the revelation. He saw a physical manifestation of this glory. Because here in Revelation, we find the glorious one who is on the throne with jasper and, and ruby, rainbow and emerald all circling around. The glory, a weighty throne is what is before his eyes. In front of the throne, seven lamps blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, which we understand as the Holy Spirit, which we'll be thinking about the, the person, the work of the Spirit in the book of Revelation later on. And then straight into the next sentence, the sea of glass, clear as crystal, which is symbolizing before this throne. There's a sense of, you're not just gonna rush up to this throne. There's a sea around it. It's crystal. It's got a holiness, a purity that you, you will need to cross before you reach the throne. And then surrounding the throne was 24 thrones and 24 elders on them. We are best to take the 24 elders as representative of the entire um, people of God. So you take the, the 12 tribes and you take the, the 12 apostles. And if you can do 12 plus 12, which on a good day I can do that, you get the sense of 24, the complete, the, the whole number of the people of God, the 24 elders represented bowing down at the throne. We also have the four living creatures. These are heavenly beings which represent all of creation as its finest. So the, the noblest is the lion, the strongest is the ox, and the wisest is the human, and the swiftest is the eagle. And so there's a sense in this image here of all creation coming around this throne together. My iPad's doing something really weird. Not in a good way. And you, you might, as you picture that, so we've got the throne, we've got the, the glorious weighty throne with all the, the emeralds around it and then the crystal sea and we've got um, the 24 elders and we've got these creatures representing all of creation. And you might think, I, I would love to, to know more about maybe those creatures, what, what's that about and where are they from? But What's foregrounded here is not who exactly these creatures are, but the most important thing, of course, is what they are doing, what they're all doing. And it says, day and night, they are worshiping, worshiping at the throne. Never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and, and is to come There's a writer, Jamie Smith, he's written a great book which I was trying to find this week called Desiring the Kingdom. Um, he, 
one of the points he makes in the book is about the nature of human beings. He's a Christian writer, and uh, whenever we think about worship, and we, we tend to think, oh, this is a religious concept. And one of the things he's trying to say is, no, 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 no. Human beings, by their nature, are desiring beings. We're lovers. We like to orientate our lives towards something and give it ultimate place in our life. Now, most of us won't, if, particularly if we're not religious, we won't call it anything that often be a subconscious thing. But whenever we hear, we think this, this whole vision of worship might be about somebody else. Actually, he said, no, no, no. There's something in our human nature. And he goes on, to, it, it might be the, symbolized by the shopping mall or, or Amazon or Rightmove. Or, these are the symbols of what our affections are oriented towards because we, we, as human beings, are desiring beings. And so we don't just let ourselves off the hook by saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not religious. I don't need to have something where I worship. He would say, we all do. And in this theophany, this appearance, the Lord God Almighty is the worthy center of life. Depicted by this endless worship. Then he sees the scroll. And this, this takes the plot forward. The scroll, you say, what on earth is the scroll about? It has been taken in different ways. The scroll being, for some, the, the Bible, or for scroll is, in other words, those whose names who are written in the book of eternal life. But I think the best way to understand the scroll is to understand the scroll is it's God's revealed plan to both judge and save the world. This is what it means when it describes a scroll. It's God's, if you want to add the word, an eschatological, his end time plan to both judge and to save Israel and the entire world. That's what the scroll is meant to depict in your mind. So when they ask the question, who is the one worthy, able to, to judge and save and take the world towards its goal? That is what the scroll brings to your mind. And in Isaiah's vision, there was an age-old problem that is caught in Isaiah 29, which basically says, no one was found able to open the scroll. Verse 11 says this, for you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in the scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, read the scroll, they will answer, I can't, it's sealed. In Isaiah's time, there was this crushing sense, almost a desperate sense of like, <laughs> no one was found worthy to be able to take the world to Israel and the world towards its, its goal, to be restored. And in Ezekiel's vision, similar but different, God alone in Ezekiel's vision, which also has a scroll, was the one who is able to open the scroll. God alone was able, in other words, to guide history towards its goal and its good end. And then similarly, we read here in Revelation, do not weep, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll, to bring history to his goal, to judge evil and to save and to restore God's broken temple world. It says, see, the lion, he is able that's what John heard in his vision, but it's not what John then sees. 
He hears of the mighty lion that will roar, but then he looks and he sees a slain lamb on the throne. And standing where? At the center. At the center of what? The throne. The place of all dominion, glory, all authority and power. We find the slain lamb speaking of Jesus. And then the parallelism kicks in when you've read chapters four and five together. Worship happens in the same way that was ascribed to the Lord God Almighty. We find it's ascribed to the slain lamb. Worthy is the lamb becomes the cry. And they sing a new song. Their worship is now forever being reconfigured around this vision of Jesus. Jesus is not just like God. God is like Jesus. And they are forever being drawn into a worship that sees God now through the lens of Jesus. And our minds might rightly wander to moments in Scripture where we have Jesus doing his inaugural reading, if you remember, in the synagogue. Luke chapter 4 captures it. Remember, Jesus was handed the scroll. He unrolls the scroll and he reads it. And then he speaks of his liberating vision that he's going to carry the world towards. And if you recall, one of the criticisms of the book of Revelation historically was about how on earth does this book, remember at the very start we said like, they had this debate, should this be in the final selection of the Bible, the canon? Because it it felt like it didn't fit with the rest of scripture. There was all this weirdness that couldn't be understood. But then we think, think Paul in Philippians 2, the great hymn of the descent of Christ, who being very nature God was poured out even to the point of death on a cross. And then therefore God exalted him to the highest place and given the name above every other name at the name of Jesus, every name will bow. And there's that sense in the hymn of this great, this, this God who is mighty and powerful who stoops down. And it's in the stooping that he is glorified. And we find the exact same vision here just depicted in in lively and imaginative ways to say forever we conceive of the eternal God through the lens of the slain lamb. He He is forever the one who is giving of himself in such radical and surprising ways. And part of the the newness of this new Christocentric worship, this worship that is focused on the slain lamb on the throne is about capturing a more expansive and new song. The justice and and pinnacle of God's plan gathers and celebrates the nations. Christianity at its core, not as an amendment or as an add-on, at its core has this vision of racial justice, if you like, of bringing the nations and gathering them together. And with your blood you purchase for God, it says, persons from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. This is the unifying work of what Jesus came to do. And there we have our center as we focus on the lamb who is slain. slain. Jesus, the slain lamb, reigns on the throne. This is who God is. This is how God saves. And this is also how God reigns. And this is good news. This is this is good news in, in, in a world that has power structures that are evil, that has leaders who rise up for themselves. This is good news because God is eternally in his character, tender and merciful. 
This is who God is as we see him in the person of Christ. God is Christ-like. Christ, the perfect representation of the Father's love. This is how God also judges and saves. His actions towards us are given in words like healing, forgiveness, restoration, help, peace, reconciliation. This is, this is a God who when you need him, he hears, he steps down. And even in his judgment, when it comes, it comes with a, a, a generosity, a mercy, and also a firmness when it is needed. And this is also how God reigns. He, he, he is on the throne right now as the, the slain lamb. This is what it means to reign. There's this paradox of power through weakness that we are being drawn into through all of the senses that this vision tries to awaken. In his reigning and his justice, he is generous. He dismantles power, not by might, not even by power, but by the release of his spirit to unleash the victory of the lamb. In other words, he does things in a gentle, revolutionary way that he draws other people into, which again, think of this moment that we are in. And where, where do we go? Where is our hope? As we remind ourselves of the one this is our God. This is how he saves. And this is also how he reigns. He's tender. He's slow to anger. He's, he's patient. He's, he's full of loving kindness, abounding in love. And what, what do you do with such a, a huge central vision that's meant to center us? And the, the obvious question becomes, well, are, are, are we are we off centered? Are we or are we centered? Are we eccentric, which means off centered? Like, like, where are our lives? And do you know this? I was thinking about that this very question. This question sometimes I've been, I've been in church most of my life, and I know how these things sound. This question can sound heavy, right? It can it can sound like all oh, right. It can sound like I'm blaming you for not having your life centered in some particular way and there's a whole bunch of things you need to do. And that might be true in some senses, but there's also a sense of when, what we're talking about when we see in the New Testament is, you know, to center your life on God. Think of the woman who lost the coin that symbolized the kingdom of God. When she, she searched it and found it, it wasn't like, oh, centered. It was like, as I found something so worthwhile that that's worthy of my joy, my, my attention, that's worthy of the center of my life. The, the prodigal son, the father's embrace home, these were all moments of, of centering. It wasn't like, oh gosh, I have to go to church more, I have to read my Bible more. No, it was saying like, there's a whole bunch of great things going on in your life. Some good, some bad, but some of these things make terrible centers. And actually, whenever the center is the way it should be, with this place of worshiping the, the lamb. And so there's something about getting our yes right and our, our no's right in these moments where we, that's essentially the nature of repentance, that word. It means, it means getting our yes right and getting our no right, our, our firm no to things that need put in their place as we give our firm yes to Jesus, I remember, I still remember, it's from an evangelist who did a talk when I was at uni, and 
as only an evangelist can do is just use his acronyms that stick in your mind till you know, 20 plus years later. But he's saying if God is first in your life, he is to be first in your finances, your interests, your relationships, your sorrows, and your time. God is first. I like that. You don't find it in Revelation, but you get this vision of like we're meant to place life. First, your finances, your interests, your relationships, sorrows, and your time. For me, I would probably change the first finances one to the F for family because families, it's, it's, it's wonderfully rewarding and one of the most difficult things as well you can ever do. And it also encompasses finances, but putting God first in your family is, is an important one for me. Is God first? This is, this is the response that Revelation 4 and 5 beckons us. And it calls it worship. Not duty, it calls it worship. And this is the response required of the church. And we join him in, in a life of trying to center and recenter our lives as we worship the lamb who was slain. May God lift our eyes to the warmth of the embrace of the Father, Son, and Spirit as we look to him on the throne. Let's pray together. Father, you alone who are immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, Thank you that in Jesus Christ, the unapproachable has been made approachable. Thank you that in the face of Jesus Christ, we see the light and the heavy weight of the glory of our God. Our God reigns and you reign in power, you reign in mercy, you reign in loving kindness and you will restore through mercy. In your judgments, you'll be seen as truthful, holy, and just. In your judgments, you'll be known as kind, merciful, and generous. Spirit of God, have your way. Illumine the person of Jesus large in our minds. Make him first. Burn brightly until the dross falls away. Help us persevere with this call in our lives. And for some, help us to pick it up for the first time. Thank you, Jesus. At this particular moment of history, we can lift our eyes to the one who is above it all and near to us in Jesus. We worship you. And help us to worship you truer, more firmly, more deeply with our lives. For your glory. Amen.